This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This episode is titled Evangelicalism. While I'm recording this here in Ventura County, the winds are blowing fiercely and our county has been ravaged by fires with some 20,000 people evacuated from their homes, a couple hundred homes have been burned, and some 80,000 acres have gone up in flames. If you hear some whooshing in the background, it's because of the winds that are blowing over our building here. In this episode of Communia Sanctorum, we're going to take a look at something that many of our listeners are probably familiar with. At least, they think they're familiar with it. That is evangelicalism. Not a few of them would describe themselves as evangelicals. But, if pressed to describe what exactly that means, well, they'd be hard-pressed to say. And they have little to no awareness of the historical roots of the movement that they are indeed a part of. So, let's start off with a little definition of terms. Evangelicalism is a global movement within Protestantism that crosses denominational lines. Instead of evangelicals having a comprehensive and extensive list of doctrinal distinctives, they rally around a core of just a few. At the heart of their faith is a conviction that the gospel, or the evangel, from which they draw their name, is that salvation is by God's grace, received by faith in Jesus Christ's atoning work. Salvation commences with a conversion experience that is often referred to as being born again. They also hold to the authority of the Bible as God's word and have a priority in sharing the gospel message. As a discernible movement, evangelicalism took form in the 18th century, but it didn't rise out of a vacuum. There were numerous trends that merged to form it. Most important to evangelicalism's rise was John Wesley and the Methodists, the Moravians under the leadership of Count Zinzendorf with their community at Hernhut in Germany, and Lutheran Pietism. As we saw in Season 1, Pietism emerged in Germany in the 17th century as a reaction to a moribund Lutheran church. It protested the cold formalism the institutional church had adopted under Protestant scholasticism. Pietists called for a faith that experienced a real relationship with God. It set high standards of piety for both clergy and laity. Pietism crossed all lines in terms of those who embraced it, from those who stayed in the state church and followed the old rituals, to separatists who rejected such formalist trappings. Pietism jumped its Lutheran hothouse to influence other groups. When it entered the Presbyterian realm in Britain, it took on a concern for Protestant orthodoxy, as well as an openness to revivalism, a tradition that went all the way back to the 1620s. Puritans added an emphasis on the need for personal experience of conversion to be a part of the church, as well as a dedication of individuals to the study of scripture. With this involvement of Lutherans, Pietists, Presbyterians, and Puritans, we might assume that high church Anglicans would have stayed far away. But the movement's appeal attracted even some of them. They brought to the burgeoning movement of evangelicalism several traits that would mark the movement. One was a concern for recapturing the essence of what was called primitive Christianity, something that had been manifest mainly in imitating the ascetic practices of the early Christians, as well as a more frequent celebration of communion than either the Presbyterians or the Puritans followed. 
Anglicans also encouraged the forming of voluntary religious societies and groups. It was in the 1730s when evangelicalism emerged as a distinct movement. It was a product of revivals in Old and New England. While the church had witnessed revivals before, those of the 18th century seemed more fervent and far-reaching. It began with the first great awakening in the 1730s in New England. Then it hopped the pond and broke out in England and Wales. This was the time of the careers of such famous revivalists as George Whitfield and the Wesleys. Pietism entered the evangelical stream through several ports, but primarily through John Wesley, who was deeply impacted by the example of the Moravians. Established Christians and new converts alike were emboldened with confidence and enthusiasm to share the gospel, leading to the conversion of thousands more and the planting of hundreds of new churches. If we go looking for the real dynamism that infused evangelicalism and made it such a pervasive trait of Protestantism during the 18th and 19th centuries, we could say that it was the conviction of those converted to the faith that they'd really had a supernatural experience of salvation. Their conversion hadn't just gained them heaven after they died. It ushered them, then and there, into a new relationship with God that became the new center and ordering principle of their lives. And while pastors and other church leaders might have a unique role to play in leading the local church, each individual Christian had access to God without the need for the mediation of a priestly class or its rituals. Each and every evangelical felt a very real connection to God and owned a sense of their personal responsibility to apply themselves to the practice of their faith. In other words, the duty of religion for medieval Christians was traded in for the privilege of relationship for modern Christians. The dawn of the 19th century was a time of increased outreach, both locally and abroad, with several mission societies being started. The Second Great Awakening, spanning the transition from the 18th to the 19th centuries, was centered largely in the United States. It boosted the ranks of the Methodist and Baptist churches. Charles Finney was a major figure in that revival. 19th century evangelicalism in England carried a distinct social justice flair. British evangelicals bore the conviction that their faith ought to be more than just a privately held affair. To be real, it ought to impact the world for good. They became leaders in the movement for reform and the end of corruption in both government and commerce. They led the charge for abolition under such notables as William Wilberforce. Toward the end of the 19th century, that party within the Methodists who long argued for what they called entire sanctification, they started a holiness movement that separated itself from the rest of Methodism. It was never really very popular in England, but certain portions of rural America proved fertile soil for it. It was during the 19th century that an Irish-Anglican minister named John Darby popularized an emphasis on end times prophecy, a subject that had languished in obscurity for hundreds of years. This interest in the end times was layered over Darby's system of dividing history into different eras, what he called dispensations, in which God's overall plan went forward with a different focus in the various dispensations. Well, others took Darby's ideas, edited them for their own taste, but dispensationalism proved to be a convenient way for people to better understand both the Bible's story and how it related to history at large. It became part of the emerging energy within Protestantism that was now identified as evangelicalism. 
what kicked dispensationalism into high gear was the publication of the popular Schofield Reference Bible. That was a King James Bible with a comprehensive set of notes that helped readers parse the scriptures, along, of course, Schofield's framework. Through Schofield's influence, evangelicalism adopted a literalist view of interpreting scripture. Notable figures for the last half of 19th century evangelicalism are C.H. Spurgeon and Dwight Moody. These men began a trend in evangelicalism to see the movement led and represented by well-known religious celebrities, whose fame was tied to their ability to preach to large audiences. Founded in 1812, Princeton Theological Seminary stepped into the role of being the intellectual center of evangelicalism from about 1850 to the 1920s. Under the guidance of Charles Hodge, Archibald Alexander, and B.B. Warfield, evangelicals were armed with an erudite defense of conservative orthodoxy in the face of the challenge presented by European liberalism. When, in the 1930s, the governors of Princeton decided to open the school to theological liberalism, the conservatives left to start Westminster Theological Seminary. But the theological work of the Princeton theologians continued to shape the core of conservative evangelicalism. Church historian Mark Knoll describes this influence as including a devotion to the Bible, concern for religious experience, sensitivity to the American experience, Presbyterian confessions, Reformation systematics, and common sense realism, which is something that we talked about in season one. Common sense realism was a pushback by several Scottish philosophers to the skepticism of David Hume. As theological liberalism pressed in to challenge the centers of evangelicalism in the early 20th century, a reaction arose that came to be known as fundamentalism. It drew its name from its insistence that there were certain fundamentals that could not be negotiated, essentials of the faith apart from which no one had the right to say they were a Christian. The main point of contention with liberalism was over the inerrancy of Scripture. This became the main point of contention because evangelicals regarded God's Word as the ultimate authority. Everything else flows from Scripture. Theological liberals honor the Bible as a record of humanity's progress. It's instructive, but not ultimately authoritative. Its ideas at points may be inspired, and it is certainly inspirational, but no more than that. Human reason, aided by the scientific method, is a superior source of knowledge. Well, fundamentalists replied that not only is the Bible inspired, that inspiration extends beyond its ideas to its words. The Bible isn't just the ideas of God filtered through bumbling scribes. It is the word and words of God himself, transmitted through human agents, who, when they penned, infallibly reported what God wanted written. Needless to say, the contest between liberals and fundamentalists was fierce. It lives on to this day. Every decade or so, theological liberalism hoists its battering ram and makes another raid on the fortress of evangelicalism's tenacious clinging to Scripture's inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy. They battle the door of this evangelical group or that denomination, and while mainstream evangelicalism still adheres officially to the doctrine of inerrancy, the long-range effect of this contest has been a kind of softening round the edges so that many evangelicals are barely aware of what's at stake in the whole debate. Up to the dawn of the 20th century, evangelicalism was largely a white church deal centered in North America and the UK, 
a major boon to the energy of evangelicalism and a subsequent movement into world missions came about after the Welsh revival of 1904 and 5. The revival swept across Europe and reached into far-flung regions across the globe. The Azusa Street Revival of 1906 in Los Angeles birthed Pentecostalism, which added even more spiritual energy and motivation to evangelicalism. Following World War II, evangelicals split between those who wanted to engage the culture and those who felt that the best way to live was to withdraw. It seemed a reprise of the old Anglican argument between the Puritans and Separatists. In this case, the Separatists were the fundamentalists, while those who wanted to engage culture were mainstream evangelicals. Many evangelicals had come to regard fundamentalists as narrow-minded moralists wed to traditions that were no longer relevant. While what follows is an oversimplification, let me illustrate this way. Fundamentalists had staunchly defended the doctrine of inerrancy, right? What they defended, of course, at least in the popular sense, that is for the fundamentalist on the street, was the King James Bible. That Bible was inspired and inerrant, so any other translation or version was suspect. Fundamentalists were determined defenders of the Reformation. They adored the Reformers, but they could be suspicious of more modern authors and theologians. That suspicion grew to be a kind of general negativity to the wider culture and society. The world was viewed as wicked, under God's wrath, something to be shunned, The result was that fundamentalists began to be viewed by society as a group of misanthropes and the subject of jokes. Most evangelicals saw what was happening to fundamentalism and decided to set a different course. Called neo-evangelicals, they adopted a positive posture of engaging the culture through dialogue and exchange. They intentionally backed down from the combative militancy that marked the fundamentalists. Instead of retreating to a theological ghetto where the only people they talked to were people like themselves, they reapplied themselves to an intellectually astute and biblically sound response to the issues facing society. They reasoned that the gospel was a message of hope for all people and needed to be shared in as many ways as possible, by deed as well as in word. This led to a split between fundamentalists and evangelicals. Evangelicals came to regard fundamentalists as something of an ugly cousin that they wanted to avoid and disavow. Fundamentalists regarded evangelicals as sellouts, wishy-washy compromisers more concerned with the world's approval than God's. Over time, the ranks of fundamentalists dwindled while those of evangelicals swelled. The charismatic renewal of the 1960s and early 70s saw a resurgent Pentecostalism cross denominational lines. It even swept a number of Catholic churches. Until the charismatic renewal, most Protestant churches were affiliated in some way with a denomination. But the renewal saw large numbers of Christians who'd previously identified with their denomination now identifying as a charismatic. When local pastors and denominational leaders resisted the charismatic renewal, Those church members who were part of the renewal often left to start new churches. They established independent, non-aligned, or unaffiliated works. So the trend of non-denominational churches exploded. They didn't identify as Protestant so much as evangelical, because that best described their overall theological framework. As the number of non-denominational churches grew and they aged, many saw a need for connection to a larger movement, 
and began forming voluntary associations. They became a kind of non-denominational denomination. As the 20th century closed out and moved into the 21st, evangelicalism faced a new challenge from its old nemesis, liberalism. Once again, liberalism morphed into a new form called postmodernism. If classical liberalism assailed the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, postmodernism went after truth as a whole. <laughs> ¶¶